Well, good morning and welcome to Redemption Arcadia. So glad that you're here. I should also welcome you as Redemption Arcadia, that you are the church, and the church is not, of course, just a building, uh, but we're glad that you joined us today uh, here in the room, and also those that are catching us online. Uh, thank you so much for uh, being a part of this worship service. So thankful that we get to do this. So would you stand, and we'll worship together this morning. like you need permission. There's permission for this.
morning sun was dead the savior of the world was falling his body on the cross his blood poured out for us the weight of every curse upon him one final breath one final breath he gave as heaven looked away the son of god was laid in darkness a battle in the grave the war on death was waged the power of hell forever broken the ground began to shake the stone was
So Lord God, we praise you this morning that you are the Lamb of God, the one who is worthy, the one who has taken away the sin of the world. That now, Lord, you are forever glorified, the name that is above every name. So God, we're grateful to be able to meet with you and with each other this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would be glorified today through all the elements of this service, Lord, that they would be done for your glory and for our good, for our growth. God, that you would form us as we meet here with you and with each other, shape us into the image of you. That God, we'd look more like you after having met with you. So God, be glorified in these things, and we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Would you remain standing as uh, we read the word of God? Morning, brothers and sisters. Pastor Frank told me to say that. <laughs> the reading for today's word is from John 1, verses 19 through 34. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the Lord of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Thank you, Caroline. Morning, Arcadia. I like Peppy. And that was the peppiest introduction to the reading of the word ever. You guys aren't very peppy this morning. Come on. We're here to talk about Jesus. I'm expecting some peppiness. Yeah, okay. We've got to get that coffee bar opened, I'm telling you guys. <laughs> now I get an amen. Yeah, okay, sure. All right. Um, so, my name is Frank. If you're new, welcome. We're glad that you're here. This is Redemption Church Arcadia. Redemption Church is one church with nine congregations, soon to be ten, in Arizona. We're gospel-centered and outward-focused, and we believe that all of life is all for Jesus, and we're here to talk about Jesus today, which is great news. Um, it's Labor Day weekend. Happy Labor Day. I am always thankful on Labor Day weekend and Memorial Day weekend that I am not driving on I-17 in Arizona. That's the only way I can describe this kind of weekend in Arizona, uh, instead of sitting, actually you're not driving on I-17, you're just usually sitting there anyway. Glad not to be doing that. Um, I do have one uh, announcement before we get into uh, today's message, which is going to be based on verses 19 through 34 in John chapter 1. So the, the, that entire reading that Caroline did is, is what we're going to be looking at today. Um, on September 20th, that's two Sundays from now, we're having a pretty big event, and we really want your participation. Those of you who are tuning into the live stream, um, 
And those of you who are going to be watching this recording later on, we want you to know about uh, Sunday, September uh, 20th. Even if you do not attend in person, we're hoping you'll come after the second service from 1130 to 1230. We're having a drive-through drop-off drive for the Hope Women's Center in Phoenix, which their headquarters is actually down about 16th Street and McDowell. We've been partnering with them for a number of years, and we're in a situation where uh, we can help them with a number of their supplies, but we decided for this drive, we want to go narrow and deep. And so if you go on our website or talk to our operations manager, Stephanie Shoemate, she can tell you that there are specifically five items that we're trying to collect in great quantities for uh, the Hope Women's Center. And if you could uh, purchase some of those, Costco, Target, Walmart, wherever it is that you go, um, and bring those by on that day between 11.30 and 12.30. As you, as you drive in and drop off, we're also going to be giving everybody in, in the car a, a sack lunch. Now, we're doing a sack lunch because we're worried about gathering and distancing and all of that stuff. But I want to explain to you that this is not just an or this is not going to be a peanut butter sandwich with a jello cup, okay? This is Bruce Brown is preparing our lunches, so it's going to be decent. Um, I think there's also going to be a little grab bag for the kids if you have kids. Yeah, so there's something there. Uh, we're also setting it up so that at somewhere in the parking lot, we're going to have myself and the Tylers and Trey kind of hanging out in case anybody uh, wants to talk to a pastor or pray with a pastor or just uh, talk to us about anything. We'll, be, we'll have our masks on and all of that, and we'll, we'll be careful about it. But if you need prayer and you want to talk, so we'll be out there. Uh, during that whole hour too. So we're going to be collecting things for Hope Women's Center. We're going to be uh, giving you lunch. You can eat the lunch in, depending on the weather, you can eat the lunch in your car in the parking lot. Maybe there will be a couple of picnic tables set up or you can take it home and eat it. And then we'll have pastors out there that you can uh, talk to and pray with. So that's September 20th. Please mark your calendar uh, for that. So let me pray and then we'll get into today's passage in the Gospel of John. Uh, God, again, we're just thankful that we get to gather. We're thankful that we get to be together. Um, in person. Uh, we're also thankful for the technology that allows us during this uh, time of the virus that we can also uh, gather at home if we need to do that and we can gather later. And so we're thankful for that as well. And as we look at your word, it is our prayer that you would just open our hearts and our minds to the truth of who Jesus is. That's what we care about right now and then be able to apply that to our lives. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've looked now at the prologue of the Gospel of John, verses 1 through 18. And I worked all week on being able to pronounce this word. Prolegomena. I said it. Prolo it's the prolegomena, okay? So anyway, it's the prologue. And now we have what people consider to be the introduction to the Gospel. So we've been through the prologue, now we have the introduction. This is before the, really the main narrative of the entire gospel gets started. And there are three sections of this introduction. The introduction goes from chapter 1, verse 19, through chapter 2, verse 12. So this week, we're looking at uh, Jesus being identified by John the Baptist as the Lamb of God. This is significant. That's today, verses 19 through 34. Next week is Jesus... Uh, picking, choosing, collecting his first disciples for his ministry. That's the rest of chapter 1. And then the following week, uh, on the 20th of September, which I expect everybody's going to be interested in, uh, this is Jesus' first sign, his first miracle, where he turns the water into wine at the wedding at, at Cana. And, and so we look at this gospel, and again, just to be able to get ourselves squared away and oriented towards what's happening here, John, the apostle, wrote this gospel, but right now we see that early on in this gospel of John, there's a character named John who's one of the main uh, people that's being write, written about early on. So who is this John that's being discussed here? We don't want to be confused about these Johns. Well, this, is, this John is commonly known as John the Baptist. Uh, he's actually related to Jesus. He's like a second cousin of Jesus. And, and if you want more on that, you should read Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1 is just a magnificent, beautiful chapter about uh, the interplay between uh, how Zechariah and Elizabeth are called to their ministry and how Mary gets called to her ministry and how different it is and how, how it's interconnected and it, yet it's the same 
It's, it's really interesting. John the Baptist is the son of the priest, Zedekiah, and his wife, Elizabeth. And, and, and John is a few months, we mentioned this last week, John is a few months older than his cousin Jesus, and he becomes a key New Testament prophet, and of course Jesus is the long-awaited-for Messiah. So as we look at the verses today, 19 through 34, we're going to split it up into three sections, and we're just going to go section by section, one at a time, and we're going to start with 19 through 23, so those first five verses. And in those first five verses, we're told that John, his whole purpose in life is to give testimony about Jesus and who Jesus is. He's testifying to the truth of Jesus. And as a result, he gets interrogated by the uptight professional religious people in his area who hear about this. And that word testimony in verse 19 is an interesting word. It has a rich but often underestimated history in our faith tradition. When we hear this word testimony, for so many people it sounds kind of churchy and antiquated, and yet it is essential, especially when we understand exactly what the word means, especially in the Greek. The, the ancient Greek, it's the word marturia, and we get the English word martyr from marturia. So think now about he's giving testimony and becoming a martyr as a result. In other words, John the Baptist is attesting to something that will likely result in persecution for him. This is, he's giving people good news, but people are not going to respond overall and in general well to this good news. And we see that in this passage here because he's approached by the professional religious people who have all the power and all the status, and he's kind of upsetting that little religious apple cart of theirs. And so it, it's going to result in some persecution. And in fact, later on in the story, we're going to see John is, is in fact, martyred. He, he's, he's killed because he keeps speaking out about who Jesus is. So John is a witness, but he's a witness that upends the status quo and brings about disorientation and consternation. But also, his witness, what he says, what he testifies to, brings new life. This is really important. When we go to church, I hear this all the time. I just go to church and I just want to be comfortable. Okay? I, I don't know that that's a good goal for church. Uh, because really, the gospel, which ultimately is comforting, it ultimately is our only hope and the promise of God, and that should be something that we, that we rest in and that we're excited about. But in order to have good news, there's also going to be some bad news, and that bad news is going to disorient every single one of this, even as the preacher, the one who is doing the disorienting and telling people about their sin, I am disoriented as well, I am challenged, I am, I am, I, I have, I, it causes me consternation to read the truth of what God's word says about me and my heart. I, I want to think of myself as a good person, but I'm really not, I'm affected by sin. And, and so John is merely saying something that should be talked about all the time. There's this problem that humanity has. It's called sin. And there's one answer for it. It is the Messiah, Jesus. And that's the good news. People want the good news without the bad news. But what good is the good news without the If you don't have any bad news, why bother? And that's what he's doing. So he's proclaiming good news, the gospel. But these Jewish leaders certainly do not see it as good news. So the Jews and the Levites, the professional religious people, they come and they, it sounds like they're playing 20 questions. Who are you? Are you the one? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Who in the wide world of sports are you? And, and here's something else that's important to understand. There's the text. Who are you? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Are you the one? There's the text, but then there's the text behind the text, the subtext. What they are really asking John is, where did you get the authority to do this? What credibility do you have? How many Instagram followers do you have and who's listening to your podcast? That's what they're asking. Maybe a little out of context, but essentially that's what they're asking. Here's today's church world version. Did you publish a book on Christian leadership? 
Do you lead a megachurch? Are you a sought-after conference speaker? Does your ministry provide you with your own plane? Are you on TV? Why should we listen to you? Here's John's answer. Here's my authority. Here's my credibility. I know Jesus. That's it. I know Jesus. Tom, our founding pastor. This is the part where I talk about Tom, our founding pastor. It happens every Sunday. He, he was fond of saying this. He's like, imagine going to a Christian conference. It can be a conference on theology. It can be a conference on Christian leadership, whatever. Christian whatever. So you're at this Christian conference. There's thousands of people there. And the guy introducing the speakers gets up and he says, our next speaker is Bob Smith. Bob is pastor of First Incredibly Awesome Church in Applington, Iowa, a church with a membership of 80 people. Please welcome Bob. Here's what's going to happen in the room with thousands of people. All the conference attendees are going to go, wait, what? That, 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 uh, uh, you mean 8,000? It's a church of 8,000, right? By the way, not in Applington, Iowa. That's physically impossible, but no. No, that, that, that's got to be a misprint, a typo, a mistake, right? Why would we listen to this guy? He's got a church of 80 people. How much did I pay for this conference? I just did the math. I'm paying $12 for every member of Mr. Bob Smith's church membership. That doesn't work out for me. I've read a lot of ministry books, as you can imagine, trying to figure out this ministry thing. And I've read some very good ones by the big guys, for sure. But by far, without even comparison, without even having to think twice about it, there are two that stand out to me. One of them was written by a guy who past was, at the time, pastoring a church of about 180 people, and he's really never pastored a church much bigger than that for the rest of his career. And the other one was by a guy who never pastored a church more than 350 people. And the first one's called The Art of Pastoring by David Hansen. It's absolutely magnificent. And the second one, of course, is The Pastor by Eugene Peterson. See, David Hansen and Eugene Peterson, they know Jesus. And that's what makes their books powerful. Everything flows out of that. And just because a church is big, it doesn't necessarily mean they're preaching the truth or the gospel. And just because a church is small, it doesn't mean that they aren't faithful and gospel-centered. One of the biggest problems I run into in ministry today is people who are in a hurry and people who firmly believe that influence can only come with public notoriety. And that's just not true. It's not the gospel, and it isn't the way churches is, is set up even in the book of Acts. And it's one of the main reasons why I love Redemption Church. As Tim Mon, who is our lead pastor at Gilbert, says all the time, he says, we need to pursue being small. How many of you ever think in those kinds of terms? I know it's antithetical to the marketplace. It's hard for us to get our arms around that. But in the gospel, we should pursue being small, and we need to learn how to be content. One of our core values at Redemption Church that we talk about all the time is this. You have nothing to prove and no one to impress. I love that core value because it takes the pressure off. It takes the pressure off. So why Elijah and the prophet? Why do they think he's Elijah or this mysterious prophet person? Well, these are specific questions that are loaded with history and meaning. For, for the Jews, there was always the thought that Elijah would come back before the Messiah to prepare the way for him. If, if you know the t story of Elijah in the Old Testament, you know that Elijah never really died. He was taken up in that matrix buggy thing in 2 Kings chapter 2. And when you read the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, in verse 17, we're told that John... Uh, uh, Zechariah's and Elizabeth's son, John will have the spirit of Elijah. In other words, he's not Elijah, but he's like Elijah. And he will do similar work to Elijah. He's going to become a prophetic herald, a, prophet, a prophetic forerunner for Jesus. One commentary writes this, prophetic forerunning was a thing for the Jews. 
They liked the idea of somebody who went before and announced what was coming. And that was John's job. So that's the reference to Elijah. But what about the prophet? The, 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 the question about the prophet is a reference to Deuteronomy 18, that a Moses-like person would come and save and deliver the Jews, in this case from their Roman occupation in first century Palestine that they wanted to have their land and their nation freed from the yoke of the Roman government. So this prophet that would come would be a savior of sorts, but not the Messiah. So they were asking, are you that person? And John, of course, says no. But think about this. I mean, this is heavy stuff. At the transfiguration of Jesus, which we're going to see later in, in the story, who was there with Jesus at the transfiguration? It was Moses and Elijah. So this is some really high-level conversations and questions that are going on here. But Jesus is more than, than Moses and Elijah, and John is very simply doing his job and pointing everybody to Jesus. It's not about John. He keeps saying that in so many words. But that's one of the things the Jewish leaders just cannot handle, that, that, that the one is, who's coming is bigger and better than even Elijah and Moses. And lastly, John says... I'm a voice crying in the wilderness, and he says, make way, make straight the way of the Lord. There's great significance in these sayings as well. Uh, the first one, a voice crying in the wilderness, he's quoting Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Again, it's a way to let them know, I'm not the guy, but I'm telling you about the guy. But again, um, interesting to understand what it means when people say, a voice crying in the wilderness. What's the idea behind that? It's, it's indicative of a message that nobody really wants to hear. It's like you're trying to scream at people 50 yards away, and there's a strong 60-mile-an-hour wind blowing this way. You're never going to get the words. You're, you're screaming into the wind, and the people aren't going to be able to hear it. There's something blocking the message. And that message that John is giving is repent of your sins. Repent of your sin. People don't really like to hear that. Especially the professional religious people. They're walking around going, what do we have to repent of? We don't need a savior. We're cool. Okay. And then he says, make straight the way of the Lord. This is a historical reference now. Everybody in that context would have known this. This is a historical reference to the prayers of the Jewish remnant at the end of their Babylonian exile as they began, most of them anyway, they began to head back to uh, Jerusalem and uh, Judea from their time in Babylon, their 70 years in Babylon, they prayed that the Lord would make straight that path for them. In other words, there wouldn't be any obstructions. You're talking about a 700-mile journey from Babylon back to Jerusalem. In ancient days, there are probably going to be some obstructions along the way, and they're praying, we want you to make straight this way for us. And so what John is saying is, I don't want there to be any obstructions to you hearing the gospel. I want to remove all of the chances that the gospel cannot get through and penetrate your heart. And so that you might be given ears to hear and eyes to see this gospel. So we spent a lot of time on that first section, but there's quite a bit of setup work there. So I think that's important. On to the next section, this middle paragraph, 24 through 28. Now, these religious professionals had been sent from the Pharisees. We're going to talk in coming weeks, especially when we get to Nicodemus, who was a very famous Pharisee in chapter, in chapter 3. We're going to talk a lot about who the Pharisees were and what they... But they were professional religious people, sort of self-appointed and self-anointed religious people. So the, they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, Why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet... John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. That's a significant saying. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. This is, this is the paragraph of humility, just complete humbleness on the part of John. So I want to understand what's happening here. John the Baptist, understand never went through the Jewish religious leaders' official and sanctioned training, schooling, and program. He never went through any of that. So they're really wondering what he's doing there. And he's out there preaching and he's baptizing. 
So this is what this is really about, again, is they're, they're upset about him challenging their authority. It's a challenge to their authority that he's even out there doing these things. So they're saying, by what authority do you do this? We never sanctioned you. How dare you come out here? You're not Elijah. You're not the prophet. Never saw you in my Old Testament history class in seminary. And you're saying a lot of things that we never authorized. And now you're baptizing people. And of course, we understand that questioning John's authority is about really about a jealousy of their own authority. And John answers, and he pulls a Jesus on them. He answers the question they should have asked and not the question they asked. That, that was one of the marks of Jesus' ministry. Was he was always ask, answering the question you should have asked rather than the question you did ask. Because you're missing the point. <laughs> it's his nice way of saying, you're missing the point here. John says, I'm baptizing with water, which is important. It's a sign of cleansing and alignment with God that the Jews understood. We'll talk more about that later as well. Not today, but in later messages. But there's another one coming after me. It's Jesus. And he's going to baptize in the most significant and essential way. He's going to baptize from death to eternal life. He's going to baptize by the power of the Holy Spirit. My baptism is merely, once again, just a sign of what's really coming it's a picture of the spiritual, eternal reality of what's coming. And we need to see something else as well. This is so critical. This is now the second set of questions that these guys asked John that he answers in such a way that takes the focus off him and points people to Jesus. He keeps saying, stop this. You need to understand this. This is what's important. The one who is coming. And John uses the baptism question as a, yet a further opportunity to distinguish between himself and Jesus. And, and certainly he could have used these encounters as an opportunity to puff himself up, to, to make his ministry known everywhere and to make him the man. But he doesn't. He practices humility and patience and he keeps the main thing the main thing. And again, I, I, just, I see these issues one of the biggest yet most overlooked problems with what we might call the health and wealth gospel movement in American Christianity is how often the preachers in that movement make themselves equal to Jesus and then they will imply and sometimes even explicitly teach that you and I can be equal to Jesus too. That's demonic. Look at Genesis chapter 3. Satan, the adversary, comes and says you know if you eat this fruit you're going to be just like God it's demonic to say such things John doesn't fall into this trap it is not about me and then there's this sandal thing as if to kind of put an exclamation point on his claims he says I, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals this is John really making sure they understand the lowest of all servants in their economic and cultural context, the lowest of all servants in the household was the servant that dealt with the master's feet. He had to clean the feet. He had to take on and put off, put on the sh uh, sh take off and put on the shoes of the master. I mean, it's a nasty, na how many of you would love to have a job just taking care of people's feet, especially where there's no asphalt or concrete? Anybody, any takers? We're going to pass around a clipboard if you all want to sign up for that ministry, okay? That's why it was significant when Jesus cleaned the feet at the Last Supper, too. John is saying, Jesus is so great, I'm not even worthy to do that to him. I'm below, compared to Jesus, I'm below that, even. It's an amazing statement and carried huge weight when he said it. But then, here comes the crowning paragraph for this passage, the last paragraph, 19, uh, 29 through 34. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because uh, he was before me. I myself did not know him, 
But for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me, the Father, to baptize with water, said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend, the Son, Jesus, and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. By the way, you notice the emphasis I was putting there. You have the whole trinity there in that paragraph. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is one. One God, but manifests in three persons. In perfect, yielded community to one another. So he says in verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Again, it's a loaded verse. We could spend 40 minutes just on this verse. That word lamb, what those religious leaders would have known by John saying the Lamb of God, is that they're saying that Jesus is the one who brings ultimate salvation and deliverance. That's what the Lamb signifies, his atonement for sin. And of course, he's the last Lamb, the finishing Lamb. This references the Passover Lamb, so that in the Jews' mind, they think of the main deliverance event in their history. When they hear that, they think of the Exodus. So again, John just keeps tying this for his his Jewish audience. John the Baptist and John the Gospel writer uh, records this for us. They keep tying this to their history so that they would see that Jesus is the Messiah. Of course, there's something obstructing their hearts. Many of them. Some of them will come, but many of them, there's something obstructing that. But John is saying here, he's not just a Passover lamb, but he's the ultimate lamb. He's the last lamb. He's the final imperfect lamb. You will never have to sacrifice a lamb again. And lambs everywhere in the land celebrated that fact. And he takes away sin. The the religious leaders would also know that this clause points to atonement, forgiveness, and justification. And being made right with God. And Jesus brings that. It's it's so interesting. In such an economy of words, John the Baptist is able to reveal all of this theological and historical truth for his people. And John again is saying, "It's it's not me, it's him. In verse 30, he says, he was before me. Even though he was born after me, he's pointing to Jesus' deity. He was before me. He's, he's, he, he's uncreated. He's part, of the, he's part of the Godhead. He's eternal. And then look again at verse 31. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water. I, I myself did not know him. Wait, 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 wait. How is that possible? John, John is saying that this Jesus, this little kid from Nazareth, he's the fulfillment of the messianic promise of the Old Testament, but he says, I didn't know him. What? Of course he knew him. They were related. Here you go. I'll read a little bit out of Luke. Luke chapter 1 for you. Verse 39, in those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. So it's the two pregnant cousins getting together and talking about life and pregnancies and things like that. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of the Lord should come to me? See, they knew. They all knew who Mary was pregnant with. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. That's John. And blessed is she who believes that there, who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. That's some beautiful stuff there. We're going to unpack all of that during Advent, of course. But it's an amazing passage. What John is saying, so John John knew Jesus was the Lord. He knew he was the Messiah. So why did he say he never knew him? Well, he didn't necessarily know that growing up with Jesus. 
Because Jesus didn't start his ministry until he was 30 years old. What John is saying here is that when he and Jesus were little kids and they were throwing oranges at cars and playing doorbell ditch, he didn't know that this was the little Christ running around. Okay? Let me put it this way. Okay, I'm taking a chance here because some of you will really, it'll be nonstop. But I'll take a chance here. So when I was a little boy, you know, I did all the little boy things. I had matchbook cars and Tonka trucks, and I loved football and basketball, and I even started playing a little bit of hockey, and, and you know, I did, did all of that stuff. But my mother uh, knitted, and she spent a lot of time knitting, and she was good at it, and I got interested in knitting. And so as a little boy, I started knitting. So I used to knit. Yeah, see, sometimes people, I tell that to people sometimes, and they're like, I, man, I thought I knew you, but I guess I didn't really know you. You see how that works? Okay, I don't knit anymore, just to let you know, because I don't have time, because I'm reading all these commentaries about preaching. But at any rate, okay, I, you, so it's like, oh, man, I, I thought I knew you, okay? When I told Jackie that, we were, like, married 10 years. She's like, what? <laughs> Too late now, babe. <laughs> But now John knows. Now he's got it straight. And he's honored and thrilled to introduce him to the world. Jesus is God, Messiah, Savior. And of course, verses 32 through 34, as I said, we see the Trinity there. And the dove is interesting. As Christians, of course, we know that the dove is a sign of the Holy Spirit. But for the first century Jew, a dove was a sign of the restored creation. So it was significant that this dove came down because that what they're seeing is the restoration of the Garden of Eden. It's a restoration of paradise, which was lost in Genesis chapter 3. And then, and then just the, the clear, uh, uh, unadulterated gospel statement at the end of this paragraph, starting in the middle of verse 33. He, Jesus, on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. From death to eternal life he baptizes. And I have seen... And have borne witness that this is the Son of God. In other words, he's it. It's it. There's no other way. God the Father had this figured out. Read Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. He had this figured out from the moment that first sin was created. He had this figured out. He knew that he was going to send his Messiah. And this is him. And this is the narrow road to salvation. This is the only way. For our prayer time this morning, uh, Tyler read out of Revelation chapter 5. Here you go. Again, pointing to Jesus as the one, the only hope, the only promise that we have from God. And he is able because he's fulfilled the law and he's gone to the cross and he's been raised from the dead. He is able because of that. In Revelation 5. John writes, Then I saw the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written, and on the back of the scroll, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. That would be Jesus. He has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. He is the one who is able. He is qualified. He is God who has come in the flesh to live with us. Our life without sin. That's the only difference. To go to the cross as the perfect sacrificial lamb so that our sin might be atoned for so we never have to sacrifice anything ever again for our sin and then he was raised from the dead for eternal life and that's why once you become a Christian once you believe once you enter into the family of God once you enter into the kingdom of God now it is called upon us you have no fear the Holy Spirit is with you and in you and beside you and behind you and under you and over you. 
You're filled with the Holy Spirit. And now we live without fear. And, and it, this is a world that's filled with fear and people who want to monger that fear. And yet as Christians, we should be the light in this world now. During this pandemic, which I know is difficult and challenging and hard and awful, and all of us can tell stories about people who have suffered from this pandemic, either physically, I know somebody, a, a friend of mine who's died from the coronavirus. We know people who have suffered. We know people who have suffered economically. We know people who are suffering emotionally from it. We can live without fear, which means we can serve without fear. We can love our neighbors without fear. Doesn't mean it isn't going to be hard. It's going to be hard. But because Christ is the one worthy to open the seals, and we can live by and in and through him, and proclaim the gospel, and we have good news, we can love our neighbors, we can serve others. We can live sacrificially, not out of compulsion though, but out of love and grace and mercy. That's where our life is now. If you know Jesus, that's where your life is and that's where your life can be. If you don't know Jesus, this is a life that's waiting for you as well and we invite you to come to Jesus. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we are thankful for your word and its truth and we're thankful for the testimony of John here. Not only John the Baptist, but also that the apostle recorded this testimony for us, that by the power of the Spirit, you have made that available to us. That it's passed from generation to generation. God, let us, uh, let us be worthy by the power of your spirit to pass on this good news, this gospel. We pray that we would live by this good news, empowered by this good news. We pray that your spirit, who is not only welcome here, but also that your spirit would fill us up. That we would live without this fear that seems to drive so many other people. That we would be able to step into that void where people have abandoned because of fear, that we would be able to make a difference. God, help us to be able to do that. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So God, we, uh, we're thankful that we now get to also gather for the Lord's Supper, the supper that was instituted on the last night of his life by Jesus. Uh, this is communion, the Lord's table. It's a confession of our sin. It's a testimony of our alignment with Jesus, and it's a celebration of our new life in him. And as Paul says, that as often as we eat this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim his death, Jesus' death, until he comes again. We're waiting for that. And we wait with great hope and anticipation. So as you take the elements, either here in this room or at home, we pray that you would celebrate your new life. We pray that you would, you would declare your alignment with Jesus. And we pray that you would, you would understand that there's the good news of the gospel because of the sin that we have, it's been taken care of. So let's do that now.
for being here and worshiping with us today. We are glad that you are here. Uh, let this be our benediction and our prayer as we go. The words of Paul in 1 Thessalonians. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Go and live all of life all for Jesus. Redemption Arcadia. We'll see you next week.